0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June 7th. It's morning in California, early evening, dusk in Russia. Perhaps that's the metaphor for this show. Mornings in California and evenings in Russia. History seems to be repeating itself, as it so often does, of course, throughout history. Uh, Joseph Biden, the supposedly new or very old-fashioned new American president, um, is on his way to Europe. He's going, so he says, to stand with European allies as opposed, I guess, to sit, I don't know what stand means, ahead of the Putin summit. So we're back to a world of summits of American and Russian presidents sitting down at these so called summits and discussing uh, world affairs. What are they going to talk about? Apparently, Biden is going to remind uh, Putin about um, the fact that he, as an American president, is not going to put up with. Uh, with piracy, counter-ransomware attacks, cyber attacks. That's the new kind of Cold War. Gina Raimondo, Joe Biden's new uh, uh, co- Commerce Secretary. She's actually been on this show before, a very intelligent, articulate woman. Um, uh, I don't know why she's called the Commerce Secretary, maybe the War Secretary. She says that the U.S. is looking at all options, Um, I guess that includes war uh, ahead of the the Putin uh, summit. Um, And uh, more and more people are assessing Russia's role, particularly in the latest colonial pipeline attack, an attack on that most American thing, gas and gas prices. One of the most intelligent people, I think, on this latest Chapter or this repeat chapter in American-Russian relations is Joshua Yaffa. He is the New Yorker uh, correspondent in Russia. He had a a really interesting piece in the New Yorker, uh, I think a week ago, on how, and I'm quoting the the headline, how hacking has become a professional service in Russia. Uh, This uh, symbolic connection then between California, Silicon Valley, and Russia Um, DarkSide is the sort of the platform or the organizational principle for hacking in Russia. Um, uh, He he writes, uh, when it debuted on the Russian language cybercrime forums, it sounded like a tech entrepreneur's pitch deck. We created DarkSide because we didn't find the perfect product for for us, it read. Now we have. Um, He calls DarkSide a ransomware as a service enterprise. It doesn't carry out the the cyber attacks. It provides, and I'm quoting him here again, it provides affiliated hackers with a range of services from handling negotiation to processing payments. It's what in Silicon Valley we call a platform. Um, What's interesting, of course, and this is what the Biden people are trying to figure out, is the relationship between these hackers and the state Um, I think uh, Yaffa suggests that the relationship is rather murky and cloudy. Um, And of course, uh, it's becoming ever increasingly cloudy and murky and more important as these uh, ransomware attacks are growing both in importance and financial significance. Um, So I'm thrilled. That was a rather long and boring introduction, I'm afraid. I'm thrilled to have the author of Uh, that excellent piece, as well as uh, the author of Between Two Fires, a book which has just come out in paperback uh, on the show today. He's talking to me from a very sunny apartment in Moscow. Uh, Joshua, what should Joe Biden tell Vladimir Putin about these cyber attacks when they meet uh, in, in a week's time? (laughs) Well,
1: well, thankfully, and and by design, uh, I chose the profession of journalist uh, so as to avoid uh, policy discussions um, just like that. So I have the privilege of um, writing about what happens after Joe Biden tells whatever uh, he wants to to Putin uh, in Geneva, and we'll see what, if anything, is the result. Um,
0: Very careful, very very Russian-style dodge, Josh.
1: Well, or maybe very classic journalistic-style dodge. So I I wouldn't really... um, offer uh, my own thoughts because I don't necessarily have them on what Biden should um, tell Putin. But I think what I'm more comfortable or just more confident, frankly, talking about is what the lay of the land looks like, as far as we understand it, as concerns, um, well, specifically in the intro, you you pay a lot of attention to the question of hacking. And clearly, even if an outfit like Darkseid, which was behind the colonial pipeline ransomware attack is not actually A Russian government outfit. There isn't any reporting uh, or any suggestion that the hackers behind DarkSide uh, work for or in some way controlled by the Russian state. Nonetheless, there is a kind of winking, um, don't ask, don't tell policy on the part of uh, the Russian state towards hackers based uh, on Russian territory in which the hackers know to avoid Russian targets, uh, not Uh, to attack institutions and individuals based in Russia or in the former Soviet Union to direct their attacks outward. Uh, In return, the Russian state effectively turns a kind of blind eye, doesn't really get all too interested in what the hackers uh, are doing. And when it so uh, chooses, the Russian state reserves the right to recruit or co-opt these hackers into various activities that are of interest uh, to the Russian state, say, hacking not with uh, commercial intent, but with uh, geopolitical intent. We've seen that before where hackers from the mercenary or mercantile uh, hacking underground in Russia are suddenly found participating in hacking attacks where the target or the goal is not to extract uh, money or other economic financial advantage, but rather essentially intelligence. So there is a fluid line between criminal and political hackers. Uh, In Russia, and I think that's certainly something Biden uh, I would expect uh, to raise uh, with Putin as as the stakes uh, of the uh, hacking attacks grow larger. It's not just a question of the um, so let's call them quote unquote political hacks um, like we saw say in 2016 with the hack and dump of the DNC emails uh, published via WikiLeaks. Uh, That certainly had Uh, a a rather um, dramatic, if not decisive, effect on American uh, domestic politics, but now with the ransomware attacks uh, in this line from the piece in the New Yorker that you highlighted as one expert uh, told me, with the uh, amounts of these ransoms spiraling into the tens and perhaps above, at some point, $100 million, how much money uh, do hackers have to extract from any national economy, American economy, any other country's national economy before it becomes a national security threat. So it does seem like the Biden administration is poised uh, or is already, in fact, looking at the hacking issue, not just as an economic issue or a trade issue, uh, but as a national security issue.
0: It's interesting. We we had Bart Gelman on the show talking about similar cyber crime issues and, and Nicole Pearl Roth as well from the New York Times. This has become Uh, One of the big stories of our age. Josh, I didn't actually have you on to talk about cyber criminality. Uh, I wanted to talk about your new book, but they they seem to be connected. Um, This idea of hacking becoming a professional service in in Russia, your suggestion, um, I I think indicates that the the clear lines between the state and citizens, if, if that's the right word, or state and society don't exist in Russia. They're very murky. And we in the West like to think of Putin's evil government versus um, versus the innocent, naive, good-thinking community, of course, is inaccurate. Uh, Russia is no longer that of, of Solzhenitsyn. And, and that seems to be the, the, the core argument in this book uh, between two fires, truth, ambition, and compromise in Putin's Russia. Um, rather than, um, shall we say orientalizing vladimir putin you seem to be suggesting that the interesting story in russia is not putin it's the russian people what is That's it exactly. about what is it about the russian people that i mean you obviously you, i know you're married to a russian you live there you you write for the new yorker and other outlets you've just uh, the, the book is just out in paperback it came out uh, last year Uh, What is it about the Russian people that you find so interesting and and justified the writing of uh, Between Two Fires?
1: Well, put most uh, concisely, uh, it's not uh, anything to do with the kind of exoticism or otherness of the Russian people I found so fascinating, but rather the opposite, how recognizable and understandable uh, their predicament is, their uh, relationship uh, with the state, how they choose or are forced to carry themselves in that relationship and trying to figure out uh, to the degree to which they are or are not willing to compromise, and if they do compromise, in service of what goals. All of that felt very familiar and understandable, and, and I was really able to empathize with that conundrum. Um, so what I wanted to explore in the book, and, and I hope I did through the reporting with uh, the characters who, who essentially become the kind of main focus, of the book's narrative is to try and understand in in real case studies on the canvas of real people's lives as it were, what does it look like to start out as someone with virtuous, um, recognizable, uh, entirely admirable even goals and ambitions, vision for someone's, uh, for your life, and then have to try and figure out uh, to the extent and when and where and how the state kind of wants to extract its own cost uh, when the state butts in and has its own ideas uh, about what sort of activity is or is not welcome, what are the red lines, what then are you going to do uh, in response? Is it worth making some compromises here and there so as to achieve a better and larger, uh, greater good in the long run? And all of those questions, of course, have a unique Russian cast because of the context of, of the country and its history and its modern politics, so this is happening in a very Russian um, context and a Russian canvas of, of Russia in the Putin era. But at the same time of, of the predicament or the conundrum of being someone who starts out with you know, virtuous and admirable aims and vision for yourself and then having to navigate these complicated questions of where are you willing to compromise and in service of what and where it's do you- the,
0: it, Yeah, it seems to be the reverse of Hollywood. It's Dostoevsky, right? You start good and you end bad. And, and in an interesting way, um, The hacker, you you suggest in your other work, but it it crosses over into the book, is a typical case where many Russians were highly well-educated in tech, in programming, in networking, and and most of them don't have a role to play. So uh, there isn't an economy. There is no Silicon Valley in in Russia. So in a way, they're sucked into this dark web, this vortex of semi criminality which somehow speaks to the entire russian economy is that fair uh
1: maybe not entirely i, I think that there are lots of people um engaged in sort of earnest honest uh work and building companies that we would you know recognize as ones that um are kind of worth our admiration and would be competitive in an international context and are um, but certainly there are lots of difficulties and peculiarities uh, of the russian economy and of russian uh society that make some uh I don't want to say that makes certain paths of self-actualization more difficult, but what certainly is more difficult is to avoid the long shadow of the state. The state butts in to many more aspects of personal and economic activity than might be the case uh, in the United States, where I'm from. One of the examples of the book that comes to mind here is the theater director Kirill Srebnikov, a really daring, experimental, avant-garde, and undeniably talented Uh, theater and film director, um, who uh, at the peak of his career in the mid-2000s was receiving a lot of money uh, from the state to make films, uh, was appointed by the state to be the director of a state dramatic theater uh, in Moscow, was running a festival with state support. All the while, uh, he pretty openly harbored uh, political and and civic sentiments that ran pretty counter to the uh, official mood and um, kind of the official line uh, of the day. And as people around him uh, explained to me, there was essentially uh, the the choice looked different than say, we might imagine it uh, for ourselves uh, and, and why we might think it would be so easy to just say no to the state, to avoid the state. If we find the state so distasteful, well, let's go off and do our own thing and we don't have to go work for it. Well, it's not so easy in a place like Russia specifically say in the context of film and television. Uh, there are no at least sizable uh, or plentiful sources of alternative funding for big budget uh, filmmaking in Russia. You have to go to the Ministry of Culture. You have to go to some of these state funds. The same thing in theater. there are virtually no private non-state dramatic theaters in all of Russia. So if you want the opportunity, if you want the stage uh, and uh, to be uh, to have the opportunity to, put on the kinds of productions that you think are interesting and worthy. Well, you have to do that in some sort of concert with the state. All roads lead through the state. Same thing with but, films. But Joshua,
0: you, you, you write about the state, you, you describe it as a symbolic state. It's not just a formal state. It's a, it's, it's a state of mind. It's a, 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 a general sort of atmosphere. Is that fair? The, the, the formal boundaries between state and society don't exist. Sure, and I think that
1: in the as the Putin era has advanced and entered what you might call its kind of late stage, almost geriatric. Yeah, you called it
0: geriatric, right? That
1: that line is becoming more uh, and more blurry. And I think it's fair to talk about the Putin system, um, which is not just the literal uh, kind of on paper uh, architecture or mechanics of the state apparatus, but an entire system in society of people uh, who have imbibed and internalized the unwritten quote unquote rules of the game and are constantly in fact trying to guess uh, how and when and how those rules might change as they often in fact are always doing they're always in flux and there are always therefore plenty of people who are trying to guess at the system's intentions uh, because they're not always spelled out um, so clearly but this state system that you uh talk about has spread into all other or many other aspects of life like for example the world of uh, film and, and theater something that maybe we don't think about as being so connected to the state it's not the kremlin it's not the state duma the parliament it's not the court system but even there these rules and these red lines uh, that the state is constantly um kind of it's the signals it's constantly sending out expecting other people how, how different
0: to- is this from under the soviet system you 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 write about solzhenitsyn but How different is it, say, from the relationship between a a Soviet filmmaker who was kind of rebellious, like Tarkovsky, and contemporary filmmakers and uh, cinematographers and and, and theater directors?
1: Yes and no. Um, The part that's similar is, of course, this notion of um, kind of rule uh, by signal rather than decree, I think, is important. And there is a lot of continuity between the Soviet era and now, in other words, um, oftentimes the most important rules are not the ones that are spelled out in plain text, but are the ones you're meant to somehow uh, suss out from the atmosphere, internalize and act out. And if you break those unwritten rules, the consequences can um,
0: be serious. And, and of course, that, Russian literature is is built on those, both sort of parodying and, and trying to interpret and make sense of those rules.
1: Sure. Um, uh, and in the case of someone like Seremnikov, just to bring home, the consequences—he clearly ran afoul of some uh, of these unspoken, informal internal rules of the game—and uh, found himself uh, the at the at the wrong end of a fraud prosecution that threatened to send him to prison for for several years. Um, so the consequences for breaking the these unwritten rules can also be very real. Um, on the flip side, though, the part that that I think is a key difference is that the Soviet system was. Uh, Externally uh, coherent, and in, in the sense that it uh, it, it didn't pretend uh, to be something uh, that it wasn't. I mean, of course, it it, it, it nonetheless you know there were lots of uh, moments of um, hypocrisy or or um, the Soviet state kind of not living up to its ideals. But I just mean in terms of its uh, construction, uh, in which it was a single-party state that didn't pretend uh, to be a democracy. It didn't you know, pretend to have an independent Judiciary didn't pretend to have an independent media. It was a top-down system that announced itself as such and acted accordingly. I think the big difference with today's Russia, which can oftentimes make these rules even more tricky and murky, a word you've used a few times I think correctly, to navigate is now outwardly Russia claims to be a democracy. There are technically several parties in parliament of course all of those parties are under the same the control of the same group of people in the kremlin um uh there are uh there is a, a, a actually thriving media scene this becomes a very complicated subject to talk about because yes the state has come to really dominate and take over uh the the media scene certainly since the rise of putin 20 years ago and that's uh absolutely the case on television where almost all independent television has been Wiped off the airwaves. But even there, not entirely. There is an independent station uh, on cable called DOS, uh, so TV Rain, that actually takes a quite independent, even um, opposition minded uh, framework. Same thing can be true for uh, print and online media. There are a number of outlets facing perpetual pressure. It's never easy or simple or even safe, alas, uh, to do independent journalism that challenges. Uh, the Kremlin line and Kremlin interests in Russia, but it does exist. So there are lots of these kind of weird niches and weird spaces that are kind of half free, uh, become maybe less free, the state encroaches on them even more, puts more pressure, then backs off. So um, there are these kind of liminal uh, half spaces that at the same, at one hand, provide an outlet for a real uh, element, degree of free expression, but at the same time, make uh, things all the more complicated when you're inside the system to understand what are the actual, what are the rules of the game that you're
0: playing? Right. Well, the rules of the game, and of course, all this brings to mind uh, Churchill. It was always Churchill when we quote people, his famous remark about Russia being, what is it? A doll inside a doll inside a doll. You you talk about complexity, and fogginess. And one of the things I like about your book, one of the most memorable things about Between Two Fires is your introduction of the this notion of the wily man, which is borrowed from um, uh, uh, a Soviet, a, a late Soviet writer called Yuri Levada. What is a wily man and why do you make it the kind of the, the anchor, the, the organizing principle of your book?
1: Wily man uh, was indeed a concept, as you mentioned, created or first introduced by the um, great late Soviet Russian sociologist, Yuri Levada, who was trying to grapple with the idea for himself of why did this Soviet man archetype, the Homo Sovieticus, in quotes, not fully disappear with the collapse of the Soviet Union? Why was um, the modern Russian uh, archetype still a person who was riven by doublethink, who was willing to display were in fact most habituated to display outward loyalty to a system while in fact always trying to undermine uh, that system for personal interest. Someone who expressed um, faith and loyalty and approval, but in fact harbored uh, great doubt, and was very clear-eyed about all of the failings and corruption uh, of that same system. Someone who was um, didn't just tolerate self-deception, as Lovato wrote, but actually sought out and was most comfortable um, in self-deception, and as Lavada struggled with the durability of that um, sociological type, um, he wrote the essay "Wily Man" uh, in response to his own intellectual struggles. Uh, shall we say to try and understand what could he fairly call this new personality? Is type. it like
0: the Disney character Wily Coyote? Uh,
1: I think. I mean, this, the the word "wily" I think carries meaning um, across context, right? There's an element of resourcefulness and craftiness uh, contained uh, in that word, absolutely, someone who doesn't expect or count on the state to deliver all that much to him or her, and, and really comes to rely instead on his or her own uh, workarounds, personal connections, ability to outsmart uh, that system for uh, personal gain. And uh, this was Levada's idea, and I came across it much later. He, he wrote this essay in 2000, um, in 2000, I believe, the same year, that Putin came uh, to the presidency. I came came to this essay 10 or more years later when I was beginning my time as a journalist in Russia, which began in in 2012. Um, But when I came across this essay, it it was like finding in a certain way the, the master key, as it were, for understanding the people and circumstances I was seeing all around me in my reporting. It held this great explanatory power that really registered with me uh, when I uncovered this essay. And I decided to use it as a kind of prism that I would carry with me uh, to identify and understand the stories of the characters who became uh, the main stories in my book.
0: When I, when I was reading it, it, it occurred to me that other cultures have models of wily man, which they treat in a very positive way. So for example, the Czechs have Shvek, who is the ultimate wily man, who is the, the national symbol of resistance um, in your book, there's a, I wouldn't say a darkness, but there's nothing Schweckian about the wily man. You, you present, oh, the wily man or woman, you present them as people who have compromised, who have given up. Why can't we celebrate the wily man as someone who has survived throughout the ages in oppressive, autocratic, violent systems?
1: Here I, I respectively, respectfully disagree with your, your reading uh, of my book and that I absolutely do uh, celebrate. I'm certainly empathetic and understanding. And I think there are uh, moments, uh, whether in terms of the lives of the characters in my book or just in general in my own lived experience in Russia, when I find this wiliness to be not just a necessary trait, trait, but a really um, welcome trait. It's a shame that that is a required trait, uh, that the system essentially forces that on people. Nonetheless. Uh, there can be a real uh, dignity in it—the kind of the dignity of the survivor, uh, the the courage uh, and fortitude of the survivor. I think those are all important things to celebrate, and uh, this really goes back to the writing in in my own understanding of it of someone like Solzhenitsyn in his book about uh, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. This masterful. A uh, short uh, novella, in comparison to Solzhenitsyn's other works, it's it's um, quite short, describing one day in the life of this gulag prisoner. But it essentially raises this larger philosophical question: which is, inside uh, an unjust system, isn't it actually correct, uh, not just in terms of your own self-interest, but even maybe morally correct, uh, to act, um, to look to undermine? or outsmart or cheat even an unjust system. If the system is enacting a kind of large-scale macro injustice or a micro injustice directed uh, at you personally, isn't the natural response and even the morally correct response to try and um, outwit uh, that system even through a bit of uh, trickery uh, or subterfuge? In the context of the gulag and Solzhenitsyn's rendering, that certainly looks the case. It would be uh, silly for a gulag prisoner uh, to obey the rules of the gulag as they were so as not to uh, try and go outside or um, outsmart the rules of that system. I don't think that today's Russia is the gulag. I think, you know, that, that metaphor can get us into a bit of trouble if we start to take it too literally. But nonetheless, I think that there is a real, uh, not just kind of empathetic understanding in people who act widely uh, toward unjust systems, but something really to be, um, as you say, um, celebrated in that.
0: F- fair enough um yeah I-, I think perhaps i i misrepresented as you say the book but you you do say something very interesting in the book you say at one point um uh, i'm quoting you for putin the com- the complexes of soviet man are very understandable uh actually you're you're quoting godkov uh and he uses them like a resource uh, the traits of a person who is dependent envious strangled aggressive in this sense Wily, rather like the, perhaps the way in which the the Russian um, secret services are using the hackers. How successfully has Putin leveraged, taken advantage of wily man to maintain his autocratic rule?
1: Right. In- interestingly, there that quote um, from Lev Gudkov, the sociologist who was um, explaining or narrating that point to me. He himself was Levada's PhD student, studied under Levada for many years, worked under Levada for many years, and after Levada's death, took over the sociological and polling center that Levada founded, called the Levada Center. Uh, So Gudkov is is very much following in the footsteps of his um, intellectual um, mentor. Uh, To your question, I think that um, in various points of contemporary Russian history at various moments in Putin's uh, rule over the past 20 plus years. He's, he's had varying degrees of success uh, enacting uh, that model and using this wily tendency to his uh, advantage. I think uh, he's certainly very comfortable with this paternalistic model of uh, uh, citizen state uh, relations in which uh, the state kind of takes care of the citizen. The citizen doesn't necessarily feel much agency or even responsibility for him Uh, or herself, but in fact, instead is kind of waiting uh, for the state to provide its munificence uh, or not. Um, I think that that's a model going back to Soviet uh, times that Putin finds most um, uh, comfortable. And uh, I don't think he wants citizens that are too active, uh, too demanding with too uh, great a sense of expectation. I think the wily man is someone who is rather cynical that suits Putin just fine. I don't think he actually, it's not North Korea. I don't think he uh, he isn't bothered if actually a majority of Russians think his uh, system of rule is ineffective, mismanaged, corrupt even. Um, as long as they don't uh, kind of project or carry out kind of active means uh, to confront or overthrow that system, that's just fine. So he's okay with a kind of cynical but passive citizen. And I think that's someone who's very much in keeping with the spirit of the wily man. Uh,
0: Josh, let's let, let's talk about today. Uh, you're in Moscow as we speak. Uh, you mentioned earlier, and you write about it in your book, that you think that the Putin regime is entering its geriatric period, its moment, its um, Gromyko, perhaps, moment. Um, you you write about the Navalny um Uh, uh, protests, uh, the run up to the Moscow elections, Uh, I'm quoting you, uh, before the streets were regularly filled with thousands of disgruntled protesters, uh, Navalny wrote an open letter touching on the utility and moral acceptability of cooperation with the state. I understand that they're very difficult times when people have to decide for themselves the limits of the permissible, Navalny wrote. And I, and I don't mean only careerists, but uh, decent people who are doing good and see that the present conditions they can't make without cooperating with the regime. The whole problem is locating the border between compromise and conformism. How significant is Navalny or was Navalny? Is he just another failed opponent of, um, of, of Putin or is he something more?
1: I mean, time will tell um, in terms of judging his success by whatever metric we uh, choose to use. But I think he certainly galvanized society and really uh, given voice or articulated uh, a certain um, kind of gestalt that was brewing within uh, Russia. I mean, mean, that quote
0: essentially recognizes that Navalny himself understands wily man and recognizes it's a reality in Russia. Not everyone can become a... uh, Uh, a Navalny, you know, and sacrifice their life, their career, their money, their family.
1: Right. I think part of Navalny's success in drawing a diverse um, uh, group of supporters across the country is that he understands or or, or certainly projects to understand the concerns of everyday Russians. He's not a kind of typical um, sort of textbook Moscow intellectual dissident uh, in that sense. He's, He's a very different figure than someone like Sakharov, or Solzhenitsyn, he has his high and mighty moments, but he's ultimately a populist who makes an appeal to the Russian uh, common man. And I think that explains why he was able to find support, not just in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but in lots of mid and even small towns and cities uh, throughout the country. That's, uh, at the same time, we should remember that the best polling we have from places like the Levada Center, the really only last credible independent Sociological research institution we have, you know, was showing that Navalny was polling somewhere in the, you know, 6% range nationally, maybe giving up to 20% or more in Moscow. Of course, that's a really unfair measurement because uh, in lots of places in Russia, people are still dependent for their information on state television. So, uh, you know, if they watch night after night of, uh, uh, scary sounding, uh, ominous, uh, slanderous programming about Navalny and then even the most independent pollster shows up to ask them about their attitudes to Navalny, maybe you're not really getting a, a fair reading.
0: Are, are you the suggesting way... then that he's falling into the Gorbachev trap of being more popular abroad than he is in Russia?
1: Uh, no, uh, I, I don't know if that's, um, in, in Navalny's case, a um, uh, whether that's a kind of trap uh, or not. I think Navalny very cleverly has avoided becoming the West's candidate. He actually keeps uh, the West and Western politicians at somewhat of an arm's length, I think to avoid exactly that Um, reputation. Um, What I guess I mean is that we still don't really know what Navalny's support would be like in a true fair fight, in an open contest uh, where he and his supporters had equal access to the ballot, equal access to media, equal uh, ability to hold uh, rallies and so on. Um, He still might not win. Right. I'm not sure that uh, in here we are in kind of spring, summer 2021 that Navalny, even with all those factors, would emerge victorious if an election were to be held um, six months from now. But I think he's really changed the conversation and galvanized attitudes, galvanized frustration and also forced uh, the the system to reveal uh, its real kind of ugly, repressive turn that it's taken uh, of late, right? That it's it's harder for uh, the Russian state as it has for so many years under Putin, the first 10, 15 years easily of Putin's uh, Russia, there was a bit of masquerade where the state acted uh, as if it wasn't um, kind of cruel, uh, as if it wasn't um, anti-democratic. It projected the air uh, of a system uh, that at least acted out uh, or went through the motions of having some sort of Um, political diversity even if it was all controlled and pretend but there was the the state was acting as if it was um, uh, let's say uh, kind of uh, virtuous in ways it wasn't underneath the hood. Uh, Navalny uh, through his confrontation with the system has has forced it to reveal its true face whether the uh, uh, poisoning with Novichok this nerve agent uh, last summer Uh, the the kind of very uh, transparent, very cynical uh, arrest of Navalny immediately upon his return to Russia, seemingly for having done nothing more than having the temerity to survive his own assassination attempt, Um, that those were events that um, led to a heightened degree of uh, anger, a heightened degree of disillusionment. That's not to say over 50%. That's not to say, you know, Putin would fall tomorrow if Russians were given the choice. But I think it's more a... um, a kind of cumulative effect we can talk about with Navalny, that he's chipping away at the image uh, of uh, the Putin state in the minds of Russians, you know, one Russian uh, at a time. Will he ever reach a critical mass? Maybe not, you know, maybe that's something that'll happen that the next opposition figure who we don't even know about will be able to build upon and actually uh, sort of actualize, or maybe it won't happen at all. Um, but I do think uh, it,
0: we should recognize Navalny as a serious
1: and impactful political player.
0: Uh, Josh, the standard American narrative in particular always focuses on generations. We always are hopeful in the West that this younger generation, we've been through it generation after generation, will rebel. Uh, One of the the, the wonderful things about your book, as you say, is you went out and talked to people, not just in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but you went to smaller towns. Uh, You end the book with a series of conversations with young people. um, And you suggest that, you're not entirely confident uh, that the real shift that there is really a profound shift. You say that it's it's happened throughout Russia's history, but I get the sense that you end the book in terms of this generational shift um, somewhat cautiously. Is that fair? I think that's
1: right. Um, that's that certainly generational shifts have been hugely important in Russian history, whether it's going back to, the Decemberist uprising uh, under the Tsar, uh, all the way to um, the Gorbachev generation, perestroika, the, the kind of changing of the guard from the Stalinist generation to the Gorbachev uh, generation. You know, all of these shifts have proved really um, important uh, and had a great impact and effect on Russian politics and society. That very well could be the case here. You, you see it already in some of the polling. Again, the Center, which I've now mentioned many times, has done some interesting research that shows Uh, Younger generations are more uh, pro-Western, pro-American than older generations, you know, that might have foreign policy implications going forward. Younger generations are going to, it's going to be a harder sell to explain why is Russia so isolated, why is Russia in this kind of antagonistic standoff um, with the West. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you find a high degree of support for Putin among younger generations. Yeah,
0: you seem to find, uh, if if perhaps this is one way of putting it, that that, that the young Russians are just as wily as their parents and grandparents, that um, wiliness seems to be an endemic condition in Russia, in the Soviet Union. Is that fair?
1: Well, what I think, um, what I I found um, uh, is that uh, and this is, of course, not universal, right? Here we're talking about my anecdotal repertorial experiences as opposed to sort of systematic uh, scientific polling. But in some of my anecdotal uh, repertorial experiences, I found young Russians, let's say people who were um, between the age of 18 and 22, um, who had only known the Putin system, had only known the Putin era, and who had grown up um, living rather um, kind of secure, comfortable, satisfying lives and... and and. Um, as a result, you know the, the only future for they saw themselves. Maybe it wasn't literally, uh, you know, in Putin's Russia and only Putin could be the steward of that system. But they certainly didn't feel a great need to rock the boat. In other words, they had come up uh, through school. They had seen their families enjoy a relative measure of economic stability and prosperity. They were able to make plans for their future. They were excited to make plans uh, for their future, whether in university or um, working. Um, and and the system essentially was working for them. They wanted it to be a bit better here and there. They had ideas certainly about its, um, you know, inefficiencies and, and um, deficiencies and where it could be improved, but they were not looking uh, to, to launch a revolution and overturn uh, the system. At the same time, there were, as, as concerns, wiliness. Specifically, I found in my conversations with young people that they were less wily, that they hadn't actually learned the skill of wiliness. It wasn't forced on them Uh, to learn, and and maybe it will be, right? Maybe I was speaking to them at a young, innocent, naive age, but they actually um, had the intention or the expectation of a more straightforward, earnest, honest relationship with the state. In other words, if the wily person um, has this cynicism in which he or she knows that the state is inefficient, uh, corrupt, not capable of delivering on its promises, and so the wily person goes out and creates his or her own solutions, workarounds, looks to outsmart, outmaneuver the state. Uh, the young people I spoke to didn't want to do that or didn't think that that was in any way the kind of natural, preferable way of interacting with the state. They wanted the state to do as it said, right? If they wanted the state to kind of deliver on its promises, and they wanted a more forthright, direct, honest relationship with the state. The, the question is, you know, when they, uh, when that becomes difficult as they advance in their uh, careers and face the same kinds of or similar compromises as the characters in my book you know will they bend will they discover wildliness just as their parents generation had or will in fact they reject uh the entire premise and then mount a more substantial uh, force of, of opposition or resistance to the system i mean that that's the big question uh it'll happen
0: we'll, we'll see the results in another five uh ten years all we have right. to do another book, Josh, and maybe this time you can call it The the Wiley Generation. Very briefly, just uh, to finish off, uh, we had the Princeton University historian Harold James on the show last year, suggesting that the, the, the crisis or the decline or the decay of the American democracy was rather similar to the 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 Yeltsin crisis at the end of of the Soviet Union, given that Biden is not a young man and often seems as if he's half dead. Are there any comparisons in your mind between um, the decline of the American system and the perpetual crisis of the Russian or Soviet system? I'm not so sure about that analogy. I mean, clearly the American system is showing its
1: age and the limits of its functionality in terms of... uh, Creating uh, both kind of incorporating democratic representation and facilitating outcomes in a way that reflect those democratic inputs, um, the machine is definitely creaking uh, in that sense. If we look at the way power is distributed um, uh, in the Senate, uh, for example, kind of the deadlock uh, in Congress, the way that various issues. Uh, are far more popular among the population at large, but are you know are dead on arrival once they hit the political system. So there's all sorts of um, you know weaknesses of age or, or weaknesses of wear and tear that are showing themselves in the American political system. Um, but I don't think those are the the analogous really uh, to uh, the deficiencies that reveal themselves and eventually brought down uh, the Soviet Union. I think what makes America. Um, so dynamic or or what rather kind of gives the system um, flexibility is there there is a lot of renewal uh, or opportunity for renewal built uh, into the system and turnover, right? The system isn't locked in a certain trajectory. I think the problem with the Soviet Union is that it also was an ideological state. So it was kind of locked into uh, Marxist ideology long after that ideology kind of exhausted itself or proved the limits of its uh, utility. It was locked into being um, a single party uh, system. There were just there was very little that the Soviet Union system the Soviet Union could do to change itself without falling apart. I mean that's essentially what happened during Perestroika. Reform led to the collapse of the system because uh, the system was so uh, weak internally and it couldn't actually tolerate uh, reform. It didn't have the mechanisms for it. Where I think the U.S. system does have that potential. You know, will it live up to it or not? That's a separate question. But I think that there's much more flexibility and dynamism that at least in in theory is built into the architecture of the U.S. political system.
0: Well, we'll have to tell Harold he was wrong. Josh, finally, finally, we had the very distinguished um, and brave uh, British journalist and writer Catherine Belton on the show talking about, and and, and in a funny kind of way, there are some similarities between her book and, and your book about how uh, her book is Putin's People, How KGB Capitalism Took Over Russia and the World. That's our headline on LitHub. And since the book came out, uh, Russian billionaires have filed lawsuits over the book uh, in London courts. What can we do in the West to protect people like Catherine Belton and perhaps even people like yourself, who are telling the truth about Putin's Russia and who are being intimidated or chased in the courts?
1: Well, I have great respect for Catherine, who I know personally and uh, admire her work and and, and admire her uh, book most of all, and I, I wish her luck um, both um, in, in in bookstores and in the courtroom. Um, I, I think that uh, the, the the kind of key takeaway from Catherine's book, uh, most of all, is the degree to which none of this—by none of this, I mean the kind of the the, the um, you know, corruption uh, of the Putin state, the 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 means. Or the ability to use those corrupt ends to then not just uh, create, you know, undemocratic um, structures at home, but to export uh, that uh, abroad uh, in, in terms of trying to meddle uh, in other uh, areas and, and countries. None of that would be possible if the West, New York, London, uh, Switzerland, uh, Spain—you name it—you know—weren't uh, willing to to look the other way when it comes to uh, the influx of ill-gotten. Uh, Russian cash, which has become quite lucrative and, and quite attractive for a lot of these global uh, financial centers, and, and a lot much of Catherine's book documents exactly how illicit wealth, ill-gotten wealth, corrupt wealth from Russia made its way uh, into Western political and economic systems, and then worked inevitably to undermine those systems. And so, I think we have a great deal of power, were we so to choose it, uh, to if, to really sort of put our money where our mouth is, and actually. Um, turn down a bit of profit at the expense of uh, democratic... uh, Uh,
0: Ironically, I I think what you're suggesting is that Putin not only has made Russians wily, but he's made all of us wily.
1: Certainly, I think, you know, um, uh, London... Real estate uh, agents of the 2000s. I, I don't mean to throw them kind of under the bus um, specifically, right? Yes, but you can. I
0: think uh, we would all be thrilled if London real estate agents were put under the thrown mm-hmm. under the bus, never to reappear. Uh, Joshua, yeah, uh, for uh, wonderful conversation. We went a bit long. I appreciate your generosity of your time. Uh, your book, um, Between Two Fires. Truth, Ambition and Compromise in Putin's Russia. It came out last year. It's won lots of prizes and accolades. It just came out in paperback. It's a must read if you want to understand Putin's Russia and indeed wily Man. You're talking to me from Moscow. I know that uh, COVID, uh, we're in a sort of weird, maybe Putin-esque, uh, weird, surreal post-COVID world. What else should people be reading since we're all kind of stuck inside? Uh, still in, in the post-COVID age, you in uh, Moscow, me in San Francisco, uh, in addition to Between Two Fires. Sure. This conversation got me thinking about two books that I read at the beginning of my
1: exploration of Russia many years ago, long before I started to write my own book, which which I returned to, certainly, in the writing of my own book. Um, and they're both um, gulag memoirs. That doesn't necessarily sound like the most... Um, Uh, thrilling uh, or certainly not soothing genre, and and they're not. They're both very difficult reads, but they're really moving, touching, beautiful reads that I think get at some of um, the the kind of lived experience, the tactile sensations of what it's like to to live uh, plopped into the middle of a system like this. Uh, The first is Into the Whirlwind by Evgenia uh, Ginsberg. The second is Hope Against Hope by Nadezhda Mandelstam, two women uh, who survived. Uh, years uh, kind of on the on the blunt end of the Stalin uh, repressive uh, machine. Uh, Evgenia Ginsberg herself was in the Gulag, Nadezhda Mandelstam's husband, the great poet Yosef Mandelstam died in the Gulag. And there are two works that are um, lyrical and expressive and I think uh, bring to life with uh, great humanity uh, the sorts of issues we've been talking about today.
0: Well, Joshua uh, Yaffa, the author of Between Two Fires, I want to really thank you for such an all-encompassing, generous interview. Even when I was half critical of your book, you pushed back, I think, very fairly. Uh, Keep well and safe in Moscow and keep doing your your wonderful reporting for The New Yorker and your excellent books. And we'll have you back on the show again to talk about wily men in in, in Putin and hopefully post-Putin Russia. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Bye.